Timothy chapter number 1, 1 Timothy chapter number 1 this evening. And uh, I'd like to preach to you for a little while. I'd like to begin a series tonight, if the Lord will allow us to, and uh, preach to you on faithful sayings for faithful servants. Four times Paul uses the terminology, he says, this is a faithful saying. And I believe we can gain some great insight as to some verses and some truths that will help us as we serve God. You know, every portion of the Word of God is faithful. So what did Paul mean when he said, this is a faithful saying? Surely God never wastes even a moment of His life-giving breath. And God doesn't put anything in the Word of God for no reason. And so there is great significance in what Paul is saying. And just as with every portion of the Word of God, I believe the context gives us an open door to what the Word of God is teaching here. Let's begin in verse number 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor of whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good, if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on Him to life everlasting. Let's read verse 15 once more and we'll pray. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank You for the privilege it is to be in Your house tonight. Now, Lord, help us as we approach unto Your Word to approach with open hearts and, Father, with surrendered spirits. And allow us, Lord, to just lay ourselves open before Your Word that You might do a work in us, in me, Lord, that You might accomplish Your will in me tonight. 
And, Father, that you might gain glory. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, as you read this passage, it cannot be lost on you that this is what we call a pastoral epistle. I told you a moment ago that the context would give us the key uh, to this uh, seeming curiosity in Scripture. You see, I don't believe that Paul is saying this saying of Scripture is any more true or any more accurate or any more inspired or any more infallible than the rest of the Word of God. But when we think about the word faithful, we must remember that Paul is the old man of God. And he's writing to the young man of God. And when he writes to Timothy, he is writing concerning things about ministry. Now, let me just tell you something. I understand that God does call some men to preach. I understand that He calls folks to be missionaries. I believe He calls folks to be evangelists. I understand there are people that God calls to serve Him in a public capacity in that respect. But do you know that every single one of us has been called into ministry? We have received this ministry from Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors for Jesus Christ, every single one of us. God is reconciling the world unto Himself, and He's doing it through you and I, and we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And as such, I believe that God provided for us the pastoral epistles, not just so we might know how to structure the local church, not just so pastors would know how to deal with pastoral issues, but inasmuch as every one of us has a responsibility to carry out the Great Commission and to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, God knew that you and I were going to need some encouragement sometimes as we set about to accomplish this. And when Paul says this is a faithful saying, I do not believe what he is saying is that this saying is proved true because every portion of the Word of God has proved true. But can I say it to you this way? It's almost as though Paul is saying this. This truth has been a faithful friend to me. When we speak of someone that is faithful, we're speaking of someone that's stuck by you. Am I right? When we speak about a spouse that is faithful, we mean they've always been true to you. And in the hardest times, they have stuck with you. Even when you wasn't lovable, they stuck with you. Even when your hair was all over your head, or in my case, wasn't all over your head, they stuck with you. Even when you woke up and your breath stunk, amen, they stuck with you and they loved you anyhow. And when we think of a friend that is faithful, We think of someone that you could call on at any moment and they would be there and they would answer. There are certain friends that God has blessed me with that I know if I had to call, if it was 2.30 in the morning, I was stuck on the side of the road, uh, you know, in in, North Dakota or something, I'd call them, I could say, listen, I need your help. And they'd be there as quick as they could. And there's friends that I know that when other folks have uh, uh, seen an opportunity to pick up and cast a stone, they saw it as an opportunity to uplift the downtrodden in my life. And I believe what Paul is saying is this, Timothy, as you endeavor to serve God, there are going to be some truths that are going to get you through sometimes. There are some important truths in the Word of God, and all of it is true, but Timothy, in my life, There have been times when there was nothing more holding me in the ministry than these truths. And they have been faithful in my life, and they'll be faithful in your life. Now, there's four of them that Paul gives us. There's two in 1 Timothy and one in 2 Timothy and one in the book of Titus, which is also a pastoral epistle. But they present to us four basic truths that I believe help us 
when it's easy to give up. Don't you know that sometimes it's easy to give up? I mean, sometimes it's just too easy to give up. Sometimes it's a lot easy to give up, easier to give up than it is to go on. And in fact, one of those truths that Paul gives Timothy is that it's always better to go on than it is to give up. But here in this passage, there is a basic elemental truth. And it's interesting that Paul, it should be the first one he should mention, because it is the foundational premise for everything that we do as we endeavor to give the gospel out. And can I put it to you this way? The basic truth that Paul is relating to Timothy is, Timothy, when things are down, Timothy, when you're discouraged, Timothy, when it seems like there's no fruit, Timothy, when it seems like they're stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and like their ears are covered over, Timothy, when nothing seems to work, don't ever forget that God saves sinners. That will carry you through some dark times. And he gives us a few things that I believe will help us. And by way of introduction, I want you to notice verse number 11. We see the entrusting of this ministry of the gospel to Paul. He says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Now, boy, that's a good way to look at it. If there was ever something we need in the church today, it'd be that every single person that occupied a pew, every single person that walked through those doors would see themselves as trustees of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stewards whose responsibility it is to take that blessed gospel and share it with those that are in need. Paul begins by saying, Timothy, God has entrusted this gospel to me, and He has entrusted it to you. Can I remind you of something? It's not the lost that win the lost to Jesus Christ. It's those that have been saved. You say, oh, it's somebody else. Well, if you say that, then it definitely will be, but it doesn't have to be. God can use you to be a witness to a lost person. God can use you to lead someone to Jesus Christ. And let me go a step further and say that it is your responsibility and my responsibility. We have been entrusted with this gospel that we might bear it to a lost and dying world. He says first that he's been entrusted with the gospel. But then verse 12, he shows us that he has been enabled for the gospel. The first thing anyone would say when God says, I have entrusted you with the gospel, uh, we would uh, answer like Isaiah did, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Lord, you don't want to trust me. I can't do it. I can't make it. There's no way, Lord, that you can entrust me with this gospel. But Paul says in verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Paul says, I wasn't able, but God made me able. You know, there is a tinge of pride in us confessing that we're unworthy. You know why it is a pride for the human race? Because it is a pride to imagine that any of us would be worthy. Let me tell you something. God don't, God don't save people because they're worthy. God saves people because they were worth something to Him, but not because they were worthy of being saved. Uh, I've led people to Christ in my life, and I know that many in this room have led people to Christ in their life. And can I remind you that when God enabled you to do that, it wasn't because you were really first string or really an all-star. You weren't able to do that because you were so eloquent. You weren't able to do that because your logic was flawless. You weren't able to do that because your words were with power. The only reason that you were able to be a witness is because God enabled you to be a witness through the power and work of the Holy Ghost. Let me tell you something. If we stop and think about it for a moment, we'll realize how foolish it is to think that we could be worthy. I mean, uh, you know, you, you walk up to someone that you've never met in your life, 
or maybe someone that you know casually, and they have a belief system, they have a framework, and there's a lot that goes into that. I mean, the way they've been raised, the things that they've been taught, the experiences that they've had in life, coupled with their desires and their wishes and the things that they want out of life, all goes in a big swirling mass and mess to form whatever their belief system and ideologic, uh, their uh, ideals is. And we expect to go to them in a few moments, present to them a truth that is foreign to them, and for them to abandon all of their own logic, all of their own righteousness, all of their own worthiness, and accept Christ as their Savior. There's a reason that the Bible says the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It doesn't make sense. But I'll tell you something, I've seen it happen time and time and time and time again. And in fact, we have scriptural authority for it time and time and time and time again. How is that? Well, God has enabled us through the power of the Holy Ghost, because it's not you. We were talking, me and Brother Ted were talking before the service about witnessing to someone, and, and once they've heard the truth, that's all the more weaponry and artillery, and excuse those military terms, but it's the best I can think of, uh, that has enabled more ammunition for the Holy Ghost to work in their life. He witnesses of truth. Amen? Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost will never tell you a lie. He witnesses of truth. Not only does He witness of truth, but He witnesses of the truth, Jesus Christ. He speaks of Jesus Christ, and He leads and guides us into all truth. Therefore, when we preach to someone or share the gospel with someone, and they have heard the gospel, that is all the more artillery, all the more occasion for the Holy Ghost to work in their life. He takes the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He takes the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which He is tasked with professing and promoting and uplifting, and He's enabled then to take those things and share that experience of what they've heard and what they know to be true in their life now and to say this is truth this is right this is righteous you're lost the bible says you're lost christ can save you the bible says christ can save you accept him by faith the bible says accept him by faith and the spirit of god is enabled in a greater way to deal with that person but you see it's not you and it's not me it's christ and god that has enabled us to do this and enabled those words and he speaks about in verse 13 and 14 the increasing through the gospel that has taken place. We'll we'll visit back verse 13, but read it with me. It says, "...who was before, speaking of himself, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it in ignorantly and unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus." Can I boil it down to basically what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, I was a rascal, but God saved me, and He used me. I was wicked, but God saved me, and He used me. And He did that through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is all this important by way of introduction? I keep saying that, hoping you won't get mad at me. Amen? Why is all this so important? Because you and I are in the same condition. Lost sinners that God saved by His grace, that we have been entrusted with the gospel, and if we'll yield to Him, He will enable us to be a a faithful gospel witness. And as Paul is writing this to young Timothy, he's writing to a young man that is keenly aware of his role and responsibility in the local church. We know that Timothy was an elder or a pastor. Timothy is a man that preached the Word of God. Timothy is a man that is a soldier of the cross. Timothy is a young man that is serving God. And what Paul is saying is, Timothy, your just like me. God saved me and He saved you. God used me and He'll use you. God entrusted me and He's entrusted you. 
And so inasmuch as that is the reality, Timothy, I want to share with you this truth that has helped me. And I believe it will help you. Now, verse 15 can be broken up in three ways, I think, very simply. And uh, I'm going to give them to you tonight. Each one of these things, there is much we could preach about it. But I want us to keep in mind the context. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Timothy, this is something you need to know. And this is something you need to remember. Notice he first points to the person of the gospel. This is the difference between Bible Christianity and every dogma and every belief system that has ever existed. Christianity is not about a bunch of rules. It's about a ruler. Christianity is just not about a bunch of creeds. It's about Christ. And it's not just about a bunch of principles, but it is about a person that is central to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is just that, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is His good news that He has died for our sins, been buried, and rose again the third day, and He is powerful to save. It is all vested and wrapped up and focused on Him and who He is. You cannot remove Jesus Christ from the gospel if you do. You don't have no news to tell anyone. And so Paul draws our attention to the person, first of all. There's much to be learned there that we're not going to preach on. But let me just say that when nothing else can keep you going, He can keep you going. And he says this. He says, I want you to note, Timothy, first off, the character of this person. Who was he? What's the first thing he says? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, Paul could have said Jesus, and it would have been true. He could have said Christ, and it would have been true. But rather, we see this pairing of the term Christ-Jesus, which is significant in your Bible because we know that the term Christ is a title. It denotes uh, denotes the Messiah. It literally means the Anointed One. And it speaks of His deity, that He is the Lamb of God, that He is God come down to mankind. And can I just remind you tonight, when it gets discouraging, when the gospel falls on deaf ears, when it seems as though nothing is going the way that you expected, and when giving up sounds all too good, just remember who you're serving. You're not just serving a master. You're not just serving a teacher. You're not just serving a priest or a pope or a religious leader or a preacher. You are serving God. He's the one that you're doing this for. You're not doing it. I mean, I understand that in a sense we're doing it because we have compassion on those people that are lost, but the compassion is not enough. We're doing it because we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're doing it because we're serving God. Paul said we are fellow laborers together with God. And we're investing in His work. He speaks of His divinity, but He speaks of His humanity. We know that that term Jesus was His earthly name. It literally means salvation is of Jehovah. But it was the name that was given to Him, though it was given to Him by angels and given to Him by God. The angel said, Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. We know that this is the name that people would have called Him in everyday activities. They would have called Him Jesus. When Mary would have been calling out the door, calling Him in to supper uh, from Him being out playing, she would have called out Jesus. Jesus, when his friends would have called to him when he was a young man and wanted his attention, they would have called him Jesus. In fact, it's interesting that all through the Gospels, the disciples never just called him Jesus. They always called him Lord or he called him Master or they called him Christ Jesus because all of those names were names of adoration and respect and names of reverence. 
The name of Jesus was the name of His humanity. And by the way, He was not given this name until He became human. He was not given this name until He was incarnate in the flesh. And so you know what I think that Paul's trying to teach Timothy? He's trying to say, don't ever forget, Timothy, that you're serving God. But don't ever forget that God loved you enough that He became flesh. Don't ever forget that you're serving a God that is infinite enough to fling the universe into existence. But don't ever forget that you're serving a God that became human enough to be touched with the feelings of your infirmities and to be tempted in all points like as ye are. You see, he wants him to understand who it is that he's serving. But then he speaks not only of the character of Christ Jesus, but he speaks of his condescension. He wants him to remember something that is personal, but he wants him to remember something that is historical. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world. Oh, my. Let me tell you something. If there's ever something that ought to fire us up for giving the gospel out, it's that truth right there. You see, you and I, we're tasked with going into all the world. You and I, we're tasked with going to the uttermost parts of the earth. And let's not ever forget that when God had a plan of salvation, it was a plan for this earth. I, and I know there's going to be some that's going to fuss and everything about this. Hey, listen, if you want to believe in aliens, you go ahead and believe in aliens. I won't, I won't look at you funny. I promise. I might say things about you behind your back, but I won't look at you funny. But people talk all the time, well, could there be intelligent life elsewhere? And I've got real questions if we got it here, you know. I, I, listen, I'm not trying to make fun, but I am saying this truth. If there was a world somewhere else, then it'd be a world full of imperfect creatures. And those imperfect creatures would need a Savior. And God would love them the same way that He loves us. Now, if you want to sit there and quote Stephen Dawkins to me or whatever, then go ahead and do it. But I know of only one plan of salvation, and it dealt with Christ Jesus coming into the world where He came. And you and I, we're tasked with going into the world. And let us never forget that God's not asking you and I to do something He didn't do Himself. When He came into this world, that was light entering darkness. But not like we're typically used to. Normally when light enters darkness, all the darkness goes away. But when light entered darkness then, the darkness did not go away because men loved darkness rather than light and their deeds were evil. And so you have somewhat of a battle against the darkness and against the light. And he came into this world, he was rejected of his own. He was despised and rejected of men. He grew up as a dry or as a root out of a dry ground. There was no form nor comeliness that we should desire him when he came came into this world, He came born to die and born to be hated. And He did that for sinners. Let us not forget that God is never asking you or I to do something that He has not done. And that this greatest and highest of calling to go into the world with the gospel is the very thing that occupied the ministry of the Son of God. Listen, He did a lot of miracles. I mean, He opened blinded eyes. He raised up folks that were lame. He uh, opened, uh, you know, loose tongues that could not speak and unstopped ears that could not hear. But every bit of it was merely a means to reaching someone with the truth of His salvation. That was what He was about. And it's what you and I should be about. But then let us never forget that if He was willing to do that and suffer that reproach, if He was willing to go unto folks, listen now, He was willing to go unto folks that wouldn't hear Him. You and I ought to be willing to go unto folks that won't hear us. 
when he went unto the world, he was going to a place that hated and despised him. I, I wish I could tell you that every time you give the gospel that you're always going to have a good response and, and a good report, but that's not always the case. If you expect someone to get saved every time you give the gospel out, I'll tell you two things. One, you won't do it very long. And two, you have an unscriptural approach to it. Because, and the preacher mentioned this, he touched on it Wednesday night. Uh, Brother Trent did when he preached for us. There are four types of ground, and three of them don't bear fruit that lasts. I know the Bible's not meant to be a book of statistics, but if we were to take that premise, then I'd say this, that more often than not, people reject the gospel more than they receive the gospel. Broad is still the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be uh, that go therein. And narrow is the way that still leadeth to life everlasting, and few there be that find it. Listen, if Christ Jesus was willing to go into a hostile world, if He was willing to lay aside uh, the robes of His divinity, if He was willing to leave the ivory palaces and go to a world, that would hate and despise Him and live as a carpenter and live as a simple man and live a reproached and persecuted life, then don't think you or I are above that. Paul says, I want you to remember, Timothy, about the person of this gospel. But he says, I want you to remember about the purpose of this gospel. Timothy, when you want to give up, don't ever forget that Christ Jesus came into the world. Don't ever forget that you're serving in the same field that He served in and that He's with you. But Timothy, don't ever forget why He came into the world. He came into the world to save sinners. That's why He came. We mentioned it this morning in the preaching. He didn't come to start a denomination. Now, I'm not against denominations. I'm against hyper-denominationalism. But I'm not against labeling who and what you are. Listen, everybody's against labels when it comes to churches, but they're sure for it when it comes to the poison that they keep under the kitchen sink. Somebody say amen to that. I mean, listen, when it's time to decide between your heart pills and the rat poison, and you thank the Lord for a label. A label is there to protect you, give you an idea of what's on the inside. I believe that's the same way with churches. I believe that's why we ought to live up to that. And I, I, I believe uh, that's part of the reason that churches take denominational uh, names off their signs is they don't want folks to know what's on the inside. They want to get them there before they can find out what's on the inside. I'm not against denominationalism. I'm against hyper-denominationalism. Boy, say that five times fast. (laughs) But I'm not against denominations necessarily. But I will say this, Christ Jesus didn't come to start a denomination. Listen, Christ Jesus didn't come into the world to dig wells, because if He did, there wouldn't be nary a dry place around. He didn't come into the world to feed the hungry, because if He did, there wouldn't be nary a hungry person around. He didn't come into the world to make everybody wealthy, because if He did, there wouldn't be nary a poor person around. But what He did do, He came into the world to save sinners, and He's willing and able to save any that come unto Him. That's why He came. Everything that we do and every effort that we make, and I understand that the grand purpose of the church is to be to the glory of God, but the grand pursuit of the church is the giving of the gospel. I mean, God's ultimate will for us is that we be to His glory, but God's ultimate work for us is to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe we ought to endeavor about to do that. Paul's telling Timothy, Timothy, don't ever lose sight of this. He talks about the recipients of the gospel. He says, I don't want you to forget who Christ Jesus came for. He came for sinners. Let me tell you something. It's very easy to live in our church bubble. Somebody say amen to that. 
Man, it's easy to live in our little church bubble. And, and, you know, we, even as a pastor, we understand that all people have value. But we also understand that there are times when someone will come and, and join and labor with the church and they don't require a lot of work. There's not much straightened out in their life. They're living for the Lord. They're surrendered to Him. Uh, they'll contribute. They'll be a part of it. And we value people like that. But sometimes, and God help us that we don't ever forget that we're not just to be fisher, keepers of the fish tank. We're to be fishers of men. I know a lot of churches that all they are are keepers of the fish tank when they ought to be fishers of men. Brother Trent said to me uh, on Wednesday night, and I appreciate this, that he said this. He said, it looks like you've got a good demographic at your church. And he said, what I mean by that is it looks like there are people at all levels of apprehension that are in your church. He said, that tells me something. That tells me that you're doing things the right way. Let me tell you something. We're not just here... We're not just a social club for people that have all the doctrinal, uh, you know, statement of faith memorized. That's not what we're here for. We're here to be a witness to a lost and dying world. Let me tell you something. I know it's easy to forget, but you wouldn't believe this, but you and I, we weren't much when God found us either. I'll tell you who He came for. He came for sinners. That's who God's interested in. Now, it's a given that He loves the saints. It's a given that He loves those that have accepted Him. But the goal, the purpose, the driving force, the target audience that Christ came into the world for was not the righteous, but sinners. And to call them to repentance. He says, I don't want you to ever forget the recipients of the gospel. But Timothy, don't ever forget the renovation of the gospel as well. He came to do what? To save sinners. Let me tell you something. God is in the life-changing business. I know sometimes it's easy to get discouraged because someone's not growing or developing or maturing at the rate that we anticipate they should. And I understand that it takes time for people to grow in grace. But let me tell you something. I still believe that when God saves a man, He changes that man. Not to being perfect, because guess what? None of us are perfect. I don't care if you've been saved 150 years. If you're still in this body of flesh, you're not perfect. But there's no question that everybody that met Christ and accepted Him in the Gospels, they always went away changed. They were always different. And I believe, and you say, why is that important, preacher? Because sometimes, I'd say Timothy dealt with this, because every preacher and every church and every Christian deals with this, sometimes it's too easy to get hung up on false professions and get discouraged. Let me tell you something, I worry about churches that don't have at least one or two false professions. There's a lot of churches, listen now, oh my, listen now, there's churches that are so scared of false professions, they don't have any professions. They just build a barbed wire fence around this altar and they lay a big old uh, minefield full of doubt and questions and the only people they ever see get saved is the folks that have been saved 40 years that they've talked out of their salvation now of their security and so that they can drag them down an aisle and say, well, you really got it now. There's a lot of churches that operate that way. You know why? Because, uh, listen, they're not just separatists, they're isolationists. They don't want anybody to pop that bubble that they're living in. Let me tell you something, I, I, I'd take any kind. I know that sounds ugly to say, but I'd take any kind. I mean, listen, let them come in here strung out on drugs. Christ can deliver them. 
Let them come in here with their life a mess. That's what Christ does. He fixes folks whose life is a mess. His purpose, His grand scheme, His grand design is not just to buy us a ticket to heaven. It's to give us life and life more abundant to change you and to change me for His glory and for our good. And he says, Timothy, I don't want you to ever forget that. It gets discouraging sometimes when you look at folks that make a profession of faith and then they seem to drift out into the world. That's nothing new. There's always been ground where the seed sprung up immediately, but it did not take root. That's nothing new. But don't ever forget that when God does a work in someone's life, when they allow Him to, it's a change that lasts. They may not be perfect. It doesn't mean they'll never backslide, but it does mean that it is a real, lasting, substantial change. Timothy, don't ever forget that that's what God's in the business of doing. But then I think he closes with this truth. He says in verse number 13, well, look at verse 15. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he reminds Timothy of something. He says, Timothy, I am chief. You have to remember the context of this. I mean, Timothy is Paul's own son in the faith. I mean, Timothy is, is a young man that he has sat at the feet of Paul. He has traveled with him. He has seen him beaten. He's seen him stoned. He's seen him run out of town. I mean, he's seen Paul pay the cost for serving God. He knows that Paul is the real deal. And sometimes we put people like that on a pedestal. Sometimes it's easy to put people like that way up here and put me and you way down here. And Paul says, Timothy, I don't want you to ever forget. He doesn't just say, I was chief. He says, I am chief. Timothy, don't ever forget that all of us, we're just sinners saved by grace. That's what we are. We're just sinners saved by grace. That's all we are, you and I. And he speaks of the extremity of Saul's sin. He has touched on it back in verse number 13. This is interesting language. Speaking of himself, he says, who was before a blasphemer. Now, Paul was a religious man. Paul was a religious man. But he says, I was still a blasphemer. You know why? Because it is blasphemy to add anything to the finished work of the cross of Calvary. Paul was a Judaizer. And Paul believed, that's part of the reason I believe God equipped and allowed him to deal with the Judaizers at the church of Galatia is because Paul was one. He had been one. He was someone that had clung to the old vestiges of the law. He was someone that in the shadow of the finished work of Calvary's cross had clung to his Judaism and his ritualism. And he says, I look back on it now and realize that I was looking at God and saying, God, what you did is not enough. Paul says, that's who I was. That's who I was. The Pope just visited town and everybody's still talking about it. You understand that a Roman... That's blasphemy. Man, to put him back on the cross, that's blasphemy. It's blasphemy to put him back on the cross. It's to say that his finished work was not a finished work. To call any man father other than your heavenly father in a religious and reverential sense, it's blasphemy. It's putting a man upon the same footing as God. It's blasphemy. To claim that any man has the power to forgive sins except Jesus Christ, who is uh, the man, the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, is blasphemy. Paul says, I was a religious blasphemer. That's who I was. It's interesting that when Christ met him on the road to Damascus, he said, (laughs) 
Saul, Saul, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He said, who art thou? He said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. You understand that Paul was a blasphemer, but notice the next phrase that is used. He said, man, I was a blasphemer. But he says, not only was I a blasphemer, I was a persecutor. I was someone that hated the way of Christ. And to persecute the church is to persecute Christ. Let me tell you something. I, I'm going to give you something that will really help you, okay? And, I, and I'm glad the Lord... You know, an expository preacher, he just picks up the rocks that are on the side of the road. Amen? That's why I like being, you know, preaching expository preaching, because you didn't come to church with anybody in your, in your sights. I didn't plan on saying this or preaching this. But let me tell you something. I've seen people at times that have set about to harm the church. I've seen people that have set about to harm this church. I could give you names of people who made their mind up. They wanted to see the testimony and and the unity of this church hurt before. You better be careful. Or you may find yourself blinded on the road to Damascus saying, Who art thou? And Christ saying, I'm Jesus of Nazareth whom thou persecutest. To attack the body of Christ is to attack Christ. To, To set about... And I understand we lash out sometimes. We do things out of anger and out of being hurt. But let us remember what the local church really is. It is the church manifest and working in this local community. It is the body of Christ through which the gospel is being sounded forth and the work of God is being carried on. That's a big thing. And we better not set our hand against it. Paul says, I didn't know it, but I was a persecutor. I was a persecutor. It's interesting what that terminology entails, especially coupled with the next word. He says, I was injurious. In other words, you know what he said? He said, I did everything I could to hurt the cause of Christ. That's who I was. He said in another place that he laid waste to the church of God. Paul was a man that went about in his day-to-day life, and because of his religious fervor and zeal, saw those that were without Judaism as being infidels and being less than precious in the eyes of God. And he set about to destroy those that were contrary to his belief system to the degree that he uh, hailed many of them and brought them into jail to the degree that he brought them before councils and saw them murdered and killed and martyred to the degree that he stood and held the coats of the men that stoned Stephen in Acts chapter 7. You know what he was? He was a Jewish jihadist. He was a religious terrorist. That's what Paul was. Paul was the type. <laughs> but you know what he says? He says, that was who I was. And he says, I'm still chief. That's still within me to do that. But he says, God saved me. God saved me. And you know what I think he's sort of saying? I think he's sort of saying, Timothy, don't give up on folks. Because God didn't give up on me. Don't give up on folks. They may seem like they're in foul shape, but God still loves them and He can still save them. If there's ever an enemy of the cross, it was Saul of Tarsus. But oh my, if there was ever a bondservant and a bondslave of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was Paul the Apostle. And the difference, the, the changing element was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that, Timothy. Don't ever forget the extremity of my sin. Don't forget who and what I am. Not just what I was. Don't forget who and what I am. But the gospel makes the difference in my life. But then he says this in closing. We see the extremity of Saul's sin, but we see the extending of God's grace. He says in 
verse number 16 and verse number 13, he said, I obtained mercy. If there was anyone that wasn't going to get saved, it was Saul of Tarsus. But I obtained mercy. If you look at your loved ones and your neighbors, oh, how easy it is to say to yourself, oh, they'll never get saved. God can save them, but they'll never come to God. If there was ever anyone that wasn't going to come to Jesus Christ, it was Saul of Tarsus. It's easy to say, oh, I know God loves them, but they'll never come to God. I know God would save them, but they never come to God. Let me tell you something. It is no great act of faith to declare that God can save the sinner. That's no great act of faith. It's plainly spoken time and time again in Scripture that God loves and will save the sinner. What great endeavor and expression of faith is it to say that He'll not cast them out? Christ Himself said that any that come to Me I will in no wise cast out. The great activity and action of faith is to pray and believe that God, through the power of the Holy Ghost, has the ability to break their will and to draw them unto Himself. I know we can get caught up in language. I understand they must make the choice. And I'm not diminishing the choice that they have to make. But listen, what are we praying for? And what are we begging God for? And what are we asking the Lord to do if we're not asking God to save them? And with that, what we're saying is, Lord, do something in their life that will make the light finally turn on. Do something in their heart and in their spirit that will finally make them see that greatest need and come to Calvary for forgiveness. Paul says, Timothy, don't ever forget who and what I am, but don't ever forget that I obtained mercy. He goes on to describe a few reasons, and we'll not explore them. But just remember this truth when it's easy to give up. Listen, there's folks, and, and there's folks in this room that invited folks to come this morning that didn't come this morning, I promise you. I mean, multiple folks, multiple folks that did that. It's easy to get discouraged. There's times, there's folks, listen, there's folks in this building, multiple folks, and I do not know anyone's heart, but based upon their own testimony, either the life that they live or the words that they've declared that needed the gospel this morning. Multiple people that were in this place, all over the auditorium, people that needed to be born again. And sometimes in the wake of it, It's easy to get discouraged. And it's easy to say, well, why didn't this happen? And why didn't that happen? And it's easy to give up. Say, well, I just won't fool with them anymore. Don't give up on them. Don't ever forget that God saves sinners. That's what He's in the business of doing. And listen, like it or not, when you got born again, that's what you got in the business of doing. And you are entrusted with it just as I am entrusted with it. Take a gospel tract, share it with someone. Take a Bible if you believe you're equipped. And listen, if you don't believe you're equipped, then as soon as possible, get equipped to share the gospel with someone. Invite someone to church. Be a witness to them. If you can't tell them anything else, just tell them that God loves them and you love them too and that you're here for them. Don't ever give up and don't ever forget that truth. God saves sinners. It will get you through some difficult times.